0: Welcome, Welcome. From Alpha Alpha to Omega. Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 16th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, 13th of October, 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week we talk to the farmer and permaculturalist extraordinaire Paul Wheaton. This episode is sponsored by Joe the Drummer, Nikhil D and the very generous James H. Thanks very much for the kind words and the dough. If you too would like to help keep the show as financially stable as a stable table, please click on the donate buttons on the podcast website. Today's guest, Paul Wheaton, is a farmer and permaculturalist currently trying to buy a new farm up in Montana. He runs the world's most popular permaculture forums and website, permies.com. He is also a prolific podcaster over at richsoils.com and has just returned from his Symphonies and Seed and Soil speaking tour. So let's join the conversation as Paul tries to tell me what exactly permaculture is all about.
1: Well first, permaculture is big. It covers a lot of stuff. And then the idea is you take all these bits and bobs and, and permaculture is all about how they all work together. Kind of a choreography, if you will. So under the umbrella of permaculture is going to be a lot of agriculture and horticulture stuff. And that's probably the stuff most people think of first when they think of permaculture. There's also going to be eco-building and alternative energy and social justice and, and a bunch of other things like that. But when when you ask a permaculture person, like, well, what is permaculture? The answer that I give these days is that permaculture is a more symbiotic relationship with nature so that I can be even lazier. I like
0: the sound of that.
1: I do too. That's why I I made it up. (laughs) So
0: how does it make it easier? What are the general typical types of design that that comes into this?
1: Oh, boy, there's so many different angles that you can go at. So I'm going to go at agriculture... Uh, horticulture for a moment so one of the things you could do so you're in an urban lot you put in a hugelkultur bed so this is going to be a a six foot tall pile of dirt with logs in the middle and then once it's good and rotten and it's got some age on it then you plant your garden on it and and when you've got got everything set up just right then you won't have to irrigate it you won't have to fertilize it all you got to do is harvest it will even reseed the annuals itself it's kind of like a gift to your future self. Yeah, you put in a lot of work setting the thing up, but in the future, all you got to do is harvest. I mean, most people, when they have a garden right now, then they're out there futzing with it every weekend in order to be able to get food to come out of it. But with permaculture, the idea is is that no more futzing, just the harvesting. So it's energy light. You could say that. I mean, different. There's, there's a variety of different things. So if you want to talk about energy... Then uh, let's talk about building a Wolfati. So here you're going to build yourself a home that uh, uses thermal inertia. So basically uses the heat from the summer to heat the building in the wintertime. And so, you know, you mentioned energy. Eco-building and uh, alternative energy are some of the aspects. I don't know about over there in Great Britain, but over here in the, the United States, three-quarters of our energy use homes is for heat. So... If you combine in this whole thing about, you know, a lot of these wars are based on energy. I think I just saved the lives of millions of people. Ta da! Damn I'm good.
0: So how do you how do you store heat for an entire season in a building?
1: In the example of the Wafati, uh some people call it a thermal flywheel. You're gonna build a structure in such a way that it has sometimes referred to as an umbrella. And so you're gonna have a, a whole lot of dirt under the umbrella that you're gonna keep dry and you hold it next to the building. Now Keep in mind the whole thing that people would do with underground homes. Now, Wafadi is not an underground home, but with the underground homes, the thing that they're trying to do is they're trying to tap in to the Earth's thermal flywheel, where uh, like here in Montana and the United States, uh, when you go down 20 feet, the, the Earth stays a constant temperature all year long of 54 degrees, and that's the average temperature that we experience throughout the year. Um, So it just holds at 54. So then the underground folks, what they're trying to do is is like, okay, well, we're going to build down deep enough so that they kind of connect to that thermal flywheel. Therefore, their walls are always 54 degrees. And what they try to do is to say that the advantage is is that when it's really cold outside, oh, and by the way, when I say 54 degrees, you're probably thinking, wow, that's really hot. That's Libya. (laughs) Fahrenheit. (laughs) Fahrenheit. So then our not using the metric system, that's our—that's like the only culture we have. <laughs> Don't take that away from us. <laughs> I'm afraid I have no idea what 54 degrees works out to be in Celsius.
0: It's kind of mild. I'd say 12.
1: Okay. I believe you. I trust you on that one. The, the guys that are doing the underground homes that are going to say, well, now when you go to heat your home, you only have to, to raise the temperature a few degrees rather than having to raise the temperature a whole lot because outside it's so much colder than that, because outside it's below freezing. That's what they try to say. And and so basically the idea is the same kind of thing, only you set the temperature of the thermal flywheel. So you'll set it to room temperature, and then because it's at room temperature and it stays at room temperature all year— it's going to be holding the making the room much warmer in the wintertime and much cooler in the summertime. And I'm trying to say this without mentioning exact numbers of degrees. So hopefully it, it, it works on your end as well as mine.
0: <laughs> so how did you get into permaculture?
1: I know that like many folks... I got bit by the gardening bug a long time ago, <clears throat> so I think it was 1993 or so, that I uh, decided that I wanted to have a garden. And then uh, I tried, and everything uh, died. And then I, I became absolutely obsessed the next year that I was going to have a garden and my stuff wasn't going to die. So I read over 100 gardening books. A 100. A hundred, yeah. And uh, that's that sounds kind of like a metric number, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> base 10.
1: <laughs> yeah, base 10, yeah. And so I, I read all these gardening books, and I was, just, I was just obsessed. But anyway, the obsession went on and on and on, and eventually I bought 80 acres. And I'm doing some stuff there, and I called it a full farm ecosystem, where systems feed systems feed systems. And a neighbor comes by, and I'm explaining to him this one project I'm doing. And he says, "Oh, what you're doing is permaculture. It's the first I'd ever heard of the word That was probably nineteen ninety one and i I went and I, I just read all the permaculture books and 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 pretty much my my thinking at the time was is it's like it's true. there's a lot of things in here that I am currently doing, and there's a lot of things in here I had not thought of yet that sound like things I want to try. And so I just did more and more and more uh, so there that's how I got started with permaculture.
0: When you say system feeding system feeding systems was this an idea you came up with of your own or you read somewhere
1: I would have to say I came up with it on my own basically my, my thinking was when you harvest a chicken you got all these bits that you're not eating and you know all the offal and it seems like why not feed it to the pigs and when you harvest a pig you got all the offal from the pig why not feed it to the chickens So there is all these things where it's kind of like I I kept redesigning my systems on my farm based upon, you know, the the ever need to uh, be lazier. One thing was, is that when you got a nasty chicken coop full of chicken shit, it's kind of like I I don't like cleaning it. I don't like being in it. I don't like going in. In there to get the eggs and it just struck me as I don't like it it's, it's wrong I don't want that how do I how do I have it smell fresh and clean all the time but you know without me actually cleaning it and so I, I ended up with the solutions where I would move the chicken pen all the time because part of it was I just I, I didn't like the idea of the chickens sitting in there and breathing in that nastiness and I kind of thought to myself well when chickens are out in the wild, which would be the jungle, they roost on trees. They might even roost on the same tree every night, or they might roost on a different tree every night. But it's, you know, it's absolutely fresh air. The, the chicken's not really designed to roost in a chicken coop. That's not its, its nature, and especially not someplace where they're breathing in all this, this horrible smelling stuff. So that just didn't strike me as right. So I came up with a new system. And it's and part of the, the other thing is is like, well, where the chicken coop is, it's like nothing will grow around it because there's so many chickens. And, and that doesn't seem right either. So then I, I came up with systems where I kept moving the chicken coop like every couple of days. That way the chickens are always pooping on new ground and, and it never smells inside. And I never have to clean it out. And then the stuff that grows around the chicken coop isn't utterly destroyed like it is when the, when the coop is fixed. So I felt like I had a, a system where I could move the chicken coop to where my soil was really horrible. Oh, look at this soil. It's like gravel. You look at it and there's like these little tiny plants that are like only three inches tall and, and sparse and hardly anything will grow there. But if I park the chicken coop there and then move on <clears throat> a few weeks later, that's one of the luscious spots in the field. So uh, that's a system that feeds another system.
0: When you made a decision to buy an 80-acre farm, that's quite a decision. Had you any experience of farming before this?
1: Um, I would say that I had a lot of experience with gardening and no experience with... Well, oh, wait, I have to take that back. So I'm, when I was a kid, I had a lot of experience with farming. I grew up on a ranch. We had, we had cattle. We raised a variety of different crops. And then when I was a teenager and I got into being like, you know, 17 or so, I went out and I worked on farms for the harvests. And so I, I drove all, like I drove combine, I drove wheat combine and wheat truck and, a, and pea strippers and, and, you know, all kinds of different equipment to harvest all kinds of big crops. And then I had some ability with computers and numbers. And eventually I ended up in the office of a, of a really huge uh, farm helping them to crunch all their numbers for all the different crops that they were working with. So yeah, when I was a young fella, I, I had this farming experience, but when it came to gardening, I just did what I was told. Hey, go out there and pull those weeds and whatnot and water that and mow the lawn and whatever else. Later, when I got away from all of that, I I didn't really have much inclination at at gardening or any of that. And then And as I mentioned, I got to this point where in 1993, I just got this bee in my bonnet. I just needed to have a garden. And it turns out I don't have a green thumb. Farming experience and some ranching experience from when I was really young. But I don't think very much of that carried forward to when I bought the 80 acres, maybe a little.
0: And so whereabouts is this farm in Montana?
1: I no longer have that 80 acres. That's over in Washington State. Uh, and now I'm in Montana and I've been hunting for land for a while although I think we may have found the piece of land and so uh in talks with some folks when we're about to buy a piece of land it'll be uh 360 acres.
0: And what is the price of land like out there?
1: Um this will probably be something in the neighborhood of half a million dollars. It's going to be about over a $1000 per acre.
0: It's 10 times cheaper in America in Montana than Ireland.
1: Okay. So, I believe this is the part where I say, Neener Neener. <laughs> joke on
0: your candor! I see little! Yes! Yes! You! We'll take
1: note
0: of this!
1: <laughs> <Are> you <laughs> little bastard!
0: You are! Yes! Yes! Why, you little duck uh, you? Why, you cotton picking! You strangle your child? Uh, yeah, but he's cool with it. What's the climate like in Montana, and what are your plans for this new site, assuming that it comes through?
1: Well, uh, I think in Montana, where, I mean, of course, uh, Montana comes from, uh, I think, the Spanish word meaning mean a mountain. I mean, this is the Rocky Mountains. This is some mighty high country here and can get pretty cold here. We we experience a lot of this stuff where it gets too cold to snow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crisp. It's pretty crisp. We, I mean, as of doing that full farm ecosystem thing, the idea is that, yeah, to have cattle, to have hogs, have chickens. To, to raise a variety of different animals in a paddock chip system, as well as to grow a, a variety of crops, you know, both tree crops and ground crops, and yeah, a little bit of everything.
0: Who are your main influences in the permaculture
1: world? I would have to say that the number one influence is going to be uh, one of your European brethren, that would be Sepp Holzer. And so he's in very cold country himself. So he's over in Austria, Alps, on a big mountainside there. I think that uh, he's the master. I think he's the man. Manobu Fukuoka is not technically a permaculture person. However, a lot of permaculture folks uh, are, are real keen on Fukuoka. And we're all watching uh, you know, Jeff Lawton's stuff, uh, who's, who's the crown prince of permaculture. He's um, following in Bill Mollison's footsteps. Um, and, of course, Bill Mollison is the guy that wrote the big black book, uh, Permaculture Designer's Manual.
0: So I was wondering if you've got plans to replicate some of the techniques that Sepp Holzer has in his farm of large fisheries in the mountains.
1: Yes. In fact, on that 80 acres I was talking about earlier, I was doing a lot of that. I built a lot of pond and, um, uh, you know, was getting things set up. I I did some variations from what Sepp does. And Sepp was over here in Montana just a few months ago, and he built uh, a huge lake. I'm, I'm a big fan of aquaculture, whereas Sep will, like, have shallow ponds and deep ponds. And he has a network of, like, the water from a warm pond will feed into a warm pond, which will feed into a warm pond. And then the water from a cold pond will feed into a cold pond, which will feed into a cold pond. Cold water, cold, and warm water, warm. I, I systems were not that intricate. And so what I was doing was is that uh, in his cold ponds, he would have trout. And in his warm ponds, he would have trout food. And what I did was is that on, on my pond design, I liked to add a finger onto the pond that would run along the hillside and, and be the spillway. And, and so what I would say is that the, the main part of the pond, the bowl of the pond, is where it's cold and deep for the trout habitat. And then the finger that would run off, would be, which would be shallow, that would be the, uh, the trout food habitat. And so then the the trout and the trout food would be in the same body of water.
0: How much constructive work would you need to do in a place like Montana with respect to water resource?
1: Of course, it always helps to be able to be someplace where there is a, an existing creek. That certainly helps. And then, of course, you're you're building ponds and whatnot. But I think a big part of permaculture is greening deserts. We've got a lot of different people that go about greening deserts. And then when you take that work home and you apply it to a landscape then you can create a creek you know with with a, a large enough patch of land and you know are you building that uh, yeah maybe but you know a lot of it is, is is to kind of do a little bit of earthworks in the beginning a little a little bit of shaping things to try and and get the permaculture systems to uh, to get into place
0: in the UK which is quite a temperate climate i was wondering on permaculture sites what level of constructive work shaping of soil and stuff is usually required
1: well the answer to that question is the same as the answer to nearly all questions and that is it depends how much is required none how much do most people do probably not very much some people are more passionate about permaculture than others and they do a lot more and, and some people are like, oh, I'm going to just have a garden, and so maybe I'll put in a hugelkultur bed or something like that, or maybe I'll just do some polyculture, and that'll be the extent of what I'll do. Uh, other people like are, are a bit more bonkers about permaculture and, and a little bit more uh, passionate about doing a lot more things. And so then if you've got a 20-acre plot, then one of the things to do is bring in a traco for a week, and, and you're going to really reshape the land. To have terraces and ponds and be able to, just through shaping the land, be able to get that water that falls in the wintertime, stick around through the summer. Now, because even though you, you get a fair bit of rain there, then I imagine that in the summertime, it's still dry enough that most people with a garden will irrigate. And then a lot of permaculture is is like, all right, how do I rig things up so that you don't have to irrigate? so that you don't have to water anymore. And that's one of one of the big steps. I mean, really what you want to be able to do is to make it so that year after year, life and food continue to come off of this piece of land with no further effort on your part. And so then if you do just a little bit, then life becomes a little bit easier in the future. If you do enough, then... Everything's going to take care of itself and, and you don't have to do anything.
0: So let's say you buy a 100-acre farm and you want to permacultureize it up. How much of an initial large-scale effort is there? And how does it taper off, say, over 20 years from the initial work?
1: <sighs> it's like saying, say that you bought 100 acres and you want to build a building. How long does it take you to build a building? And so you're going to then turn around and say, well, how big a building are we talking about? And are we going to build a shitty building or are we going to build a really nice building?
0: Let's say we take your mantra If I want to be able to be as lazy as possible. How lazy can you get compared to, say, a normal farmer who is doing normal standard farming?
1: Well, I think that's a great comparison because it's kind of like a normal farmer might get to this piece of raw land. It hasn't been touched in 100 years, let's say. And then you get there. And it's kind of like okay, your normal farmer is going to say, well, I need to flatten it out. I mean, it's covered with all these trees and all this brush and all this stuff. So I'm going to go in there and I'm going to rip out all that organic matter and put it to a great big pile and burn it. Then I'm going to go in there with a huge plow and I'm going to I'm going to just you know plow it up and I'm going to get it to be super level and homogenous. Whereas a permaculturalist is going to be more like trying to leave as much of that in place as possible. I think a permaculture person isn't going to burn anything just to make it go away. The only reason a permaculture person might burn anything is to heat something. But if it's a if it's a piece of land on a bit of slope, a permaculture person might say, OK, I want to go through here and I want to put in a terrace. Because if you're in a colder climate, you're going to prefer terraces over swales. And then I'm going to go and put in a terrace... And I'm going to try and make it so that when the water flows downhill, I'm going to hold it here. I'm going to, I'm going to hold the water. I'm going to hold the, the soil. Any soil that might be trying to leave my property, I'm going to check it right here. And then on the terrace, you might put on some hugelkultur beds or something like that. And then And the terrace won't be perfectly level. The terrace will kind of have some up and down shapes. So that's creating edge. And so then the overall idea is going to be to try and... Think of ways to be able to hold water on the, on the land longer and also hold soil and improve nutrient availability and also uh, uh, create edge so that way you can have more diversity of things growing there.
0: In, on your previous farm, how productive was it and how would it compare, say, with the output of a standard industrial farm?
1: Well, I would have to say that the farmer before me had probably... 50 acres in production out of the 80 for hay and he was putting in $3000 a year for fertilizer and selling the hay for $3000 a year i would get different answers based on how much per year it was but i do remember that it was always that the amount paid for fertilizer for for just you know chemical fertilizer was the same as he ended up getting paid for the hay. I would, I would have to say that by the time I left, the income, gross income for stuff on that farm was much higher than what he had. But then I was, you know, doing things in a far more diverse fashion, and uh, and I was just getting just getting started. I mean, I and that's another thing with permaculture is that it's kind of like you do a lot. I mean, a lot of the things that you do have a payoff of several years down the road. So, like uh, on the last year I was there, I had put in a lot of terraces and ponds, but I never got to, to experience any income from those things. I think the, you know, one of the big things that I was starting to get really good at was turning out to be a large income stream was hogs, and it just it just seemed like my way of raising hogs turned out to be a, a real profitable path. And on that particular piece of land, I mean. That's something that I think is really important with permaculture also. I mean, you're going to try and and come up with 40 or 50 different income streams, you know, food crops. It's hard to tell in advance which one's going to be the one that does well. So surrounding me, not very many people were raising hogs. A lot of people were very insistent that hay is the crop. And when I bought the farm, it came with the equipment, and it was a lot of hay equipment, and there was nothing for hogs. But hogs are what really did well, and I think that in in time I, I would have uh, really done great with aquaculture. But you know, you, you, it's like you got to try it and see how it does. I'd have to say that uh, yeah, my income streams added up to be pretty good, better than what that guy was doing, and and I was I was gearing up for much much more.
0: Do you find any parallels between your life as a Java programmer <laughs> as a permaculturist?
1: <laughs> well, wow, parallels as a Java programmer. There, there have been a lot of similarities when it came to Java programming, so I don't know if you've researched any of the stuff that I advocated as Java programming. I'm sure almost everything that, that I advocated is now far away and dusty and no one ever reads it. But as a Java programmer, I, was, I advocated some things that were very unconventional, much like with permaculture. Permaculture is not your conventional agriculture. For Java programming, one of the things was patterns that's used in the software engineering world, design patterns. And then for permaculture, we also have patterns. Well, and my philosophy for patterns under software engineering was that they should be used as an extension of language only. And there were these patterns books, and people were turning to these patterns books, and they were trying to do things like saying the patterns book says these patterns are good, and those patterns are bad. And so therefore... The thing to do is is like for all software design, let's make sure it's packed with lots and lots and lots of patterns. And so a lot of engineers would develop a piece of software and and talk about it with great pride because it has this list of patterns inside of this component. And I really think that that's twisted. And I think that there's a similar sort of a thing going on in the world of permaculture, where sometimes people will say you have to do it this way because it's the so-and-so pattern. You know, you have to have this pattern.
0: Pattern fetish.
1: Something like that. Yeah. And, and, I, and I just kind of think like, you know, I think that the best thing to do is like if you're trying to talk to another software engineer and you say the singleton pattern, the other software engineer knows what you're talking about. And so when you try to describe it and say, OK, I think I'm going to approach this using something like a singleton pattern, then they'll they'll know what you're saying. And that's the extent of it. That should be the end of it. We shouldn't do anything beyond that. I think that the thing that I liked in software engineering was do the simplest thing that could possibly work. And I think the same thing is in permaculture. You get a a scenario and you don't say, I'm going to do it this way because Salatin did it this way. Salatin is famous, therefore it must be good. Uh, And I think one great example is like raising chickens in pens versus raising chickens in a paddock shift system. The paddock shift system is not as well known. Does that mean that it is not as good? I think that the paddock shift system ends up being simpler to implement and far superior for the chicken, and far superior on your checkbook. With Salatin's PIN systems, you can only get you can reduce your feed cost by 20 percent, but with a paddock shift system, you can reduce your feed cost by 100 percent. I mean, that's a kind of a parallel. I mean, it seems like in the software engineering world, there's a lot of this stuff where people will find a solution and then they would advocate that as the solution. And we've got a lot of the same thing going on in the permaculture world. And here's another one, too. There's um, a a lot of people that believe that there's only one way to do permaculture. Uh, The thing that I advocate is that there are many schools of thought in the world of permaculture. We see some people out at so permies.com, the website that, that I have, uh, is the largest permaculture website on the internet. The primary component there is forums, because a lot of this takes a bit of thought. And it's a very different way of thinking to get this stuff to really sing for you. And we get people who come in and then they're trying to say, no, you can't do it that way because that's not the way. And, and so at Permies, we really discourage that kind of attitude, kind of approach. In, in in both worlds, software engineering as well as in permaculture, there are some really brilliant people that are very helpful. And for every one of them, there's like 30 people that have no idea what they're doing, but they're really loud and obnoxious, and they seem to get more attention.
0: I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's also a computer programmer a few months ago, and he he was aghast at the sound of permaculture and rebelled at the idea. His fear was, what he said was, do we all have to be farmers then?
1: I would say said- absolutely not. Stay the fuck out of farming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, here, here's what I see. I see that there are hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people who desperately want a connection with the land and want to be on the land, but they don't have the opportunity. And so I, I think that there's a lot of people that are not that guy who want this, but there's not a path for them. And so they're feeling deprived hey, we know what, uh, we need people to buy this food. I, here's another thought too. I mean, right, right now for a lot of conventional farmers, they go out, they get their crop, they take it down to Crop Storage, Inc., where they're going to sell it. The farmer doesn't sell it. The Crop Storage, Inc. sells it. And then the farmer, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, we're going to try and sell your stuff. Here in a couple of months, well, you know how much we sold it for. And then don't forget to pay the storage fees. About 10% of the farmers out there up paying more for storage fees than they receive in payment for the food for the food that they raised so they're actually farming and going into the hole so then let's ask your friend if he's okay with that you know farmer goes out works all year makes negative money and then you ate the guy's food you could say well then that guy that farmer is a dumb fuck. he shouldn't have done that i would agree with your friend if your friend would say that Right. So we need, to, we need to improve the systems. But the systems are kind of set up so that a lot of farmers are certain that there's only one path to be able to sell the food. And that path is through these conventional channels where the farmer ends up getting paid zero. A big part of permaculture is, is to try and, and, and do a lot of this in a different way. I think if your friend doesn't want to learn anything about permaculture, that's fine.
0: Permaculture has a great reliance on, on technology. What are its views on industrial production?
1: When Sepp Holzer was in town, of course, Sepp only speaks German. And here in the United States, we're kind of arrogant and limited, I guess. Most of us only speak English. I know I, for one, I don't know any German. <laughs> kind of leaning on these and these translators pretty heavy. So there's a fellow there, and, and he's trying to ask a question, and Sepp's not getting it. and Then Sepp moves on to other things, and the fellow comes and he asks me this question. And he says, all right, so I've got 20,000 acres. And currently, it's in farm production, you know, pumping out all this food for all these people. And it says, how do I get 20,000 acres to pump out the same amount of food or more using permaculture? So I think this is a great way to answer your question, is to you know use this guy's question. And I said, here's what you do. First thing is, is you divide that land into ten 2,000 acre chunks. Then you take each 2,000 acre chunk, you divide it into ten. 200 acre chunks, and then for each 200 acre chunk, you have somebody who's responsible for that chunk. um, That person, you know, will probably want to have 19 other people helping them out on that chunk of land. Then one day you say, uh, "We're going to fill a semi truck with potatoes. We're going to take it in and we're going to sell these potatoes. We need everybody to bring in potatoes tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. and have them to the truck. So then basically, each person that's in charge of 200 acres. Is going to go out that morning with their peeps and pick a bunch of potatoes, put them up into boxes, and get them to this central point. And there you go. There goes a truckload of potatoes. Now, when you manage 20,000 acres in a currently commercial agriculture system, you're going to have probably about 40 or 50 people working that land with a lot of really big equipment. And you're going to be probably making about five to nine passes over the land each year as you take different pieces of equipment across. So, you know, you're going to go and disk the land. You're going to go and seed the land. You're going to have another pass for fertilizer, another pass for some kind of pesticide, you know. You might till it several times, you might do some sort of other weeding, you might do who knows what. And if there's some sort of problem, you're going to have a pass over the whole crop you know, to try and mitigate some kind of problem. You know, the pass, we take the equipment through and you harvest it, etc., etc., etc. Whereas in a permaculture system, your time is going to be spent dominantly in harvest. But harvest is a bigger job because you're doing it by hand. Now, granted, for a lot of crops, they have to be harvested by hand, even in the most commercial systems. But then... In those cases they go out and it's a monocrop and they and it's all in rows and they can just walk down the row and they walk very, very slowly and pickety, pickety, pick, 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 pickety, pick, 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 pick. Whereas in a permaculture system, we're gonna use a lot of polyculture. So you never grow anything in a monocrop. You're not gonna grow anything that's gonna be like you know, one massive field of carrots or one massive field of tomatoes. It's nothing like that. It's gonna be like you're gonna go down your rows, which are gonna have interesting shapes, and they're not gonna be straight lines. And you're going to say, okay, today we're harvesting potatoes. So I'm going to go dig some potatoes here. And I'm going to move 10 feet down and dig some more potatoes. I'm going to move another 10 feet down and get uh, some more potatoes. And that's how I'm harvesting potatoes today. And then I'm going to, you know, take these potatoes in and come back here and get some more potatoes. And so it is a slower process. Maybe, overall, oftentimes, it doesn't take quite twice as long. But you didn't have to do all those other passes. And You didn't have to pay for that combine and the tractor and all other huge, giant equipment, which also needs to be maintained and needs fuel and things of that nature. Here's my political thing. I mentioned this once in a podcast, and it's like the only political thing I think I have in me. And and I believe that this applies both in Europe and in the United States. And that is that if you take away the chem ag subsidies and the organic ag penalties, the consumer will pay almost four times more for food at the grocery store. Does that make sense? So right now, if you go down to your local grocery store that's not an organic grocery store... You go down to your grocery store and you go to buy food. You go buy bread and cookies and crackers and, and whatever else it is that your grocery store has to offer. You you go and you buy it, there's a certain cost to it. But it turns out that the government is subsidizing that. So they'll have like three or four different layers of subsidy going on and to make it far cheaper than it really is. If you took away all those subsidies, all that food would cost about Four times more, three and a half times more on average. Things that are corn based are going to be like four or five times more. It's subsidized. You're paying for it with your taxes. Let's say in any given year you spend $1,000 on food from the grocery store. If it were not subsidized, then that food would cost $4,000. In the meantime, right now, if you were to go out and, and for that same food, if you bought only organic, then rather than spending $1,000 a year, you would probably spend something like $1,400 per year. But if you took away the organic ag penalties, it would probably be something like only $1,200 per year for organic food. So now compare $1,200 per year to $4,000 per year. So if there was no penalties and no subsidies, then it would be $4,000 a year for chem ag food or $1,200 per year for organic food. How much cancer can be tracked back to that chem ag food? And in the world of permaculture, we think even organic isn't very good. We think organic is lame. When when you're trying to talk about politics and trying to tie in politics to a lot of this stuff, I think there's a there's like the biggest one right there is, is when you start trying to talk about chem ag is so subsidized. And when people go out and they make their choices at the supermarket. And they effectively, as Michael Pollan puts it, vote with their fork. They're voting for chemag food, but it's not a real fair vote. The, the deck's been stacked. They're cheating. It's not a level playing field.
0: How much of a role has peak oil played in your designs or in your decision to go into farming?
1: Oh, not all that much. I mean, granted, I think if you sit down and you start thinking about peak oil thoughts, and you start thinking, you know, oh no, the price of a gasoline for a vehicle is going to be uh, eighty dollars a gallon, and it and it does seem to me that the the solutions end up being dominantly you want to have acreage and, and a permaculture system in place. I mean, when you start thinking those thoughts, the solution does seem to end up being permaculture and homesteading combined. On part of my tour that I was on, uh, one of the presentations they had me give was carbon footprint, urban versus rural. I put the carbon footprint stuff into a bigger set, which I called an eco footprint, because I also felt like carbon wasn't the only issue. Pollution is like another really big issue, and there's a variety of other issues that, that get worked into that. And then when you start talking about urban versus rural, there's um, a lot of things that you can do in, in either space. But then when you come right down to it, you're going to nudge ahead when you're rural, in my opinion. But when you try to compare somebody who's doing a good job urban versus somebody who's doing a lousy job rural, well, then yeah, urban wins. My theory, my philosophy is that it's going to be rural.
0: Thanks very much, Paul, for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom. Up to country, you want.
0: The Baby, don't you wanna go? I'm going to some place where I've never been. Here. this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and Homer Simpson attempting to choke the life out of Bart and that cotton-picking Cletus Buckler, accompanied by Johann Strauss II's Blue Daniel. You also heard the hard-working Lonnie Dunnigan picking a bale of cotton, and you are now listening to Hand Heat with Going Up the Country. Thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.